Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. As COVID-19 cases continue to surge, states are investing in contact tracing. But some experts question if it's worth the money. The proof is right in front of us. It clearly didn't work. We have exponential growth that's out of control. It did not work. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll learn about the challenges of tracing the virus, especially when it's hard to know where you caught it. And we'll hear stories of New Englanders helping one another with food and showers for the homeless. We were like, oh my gosh, this has grown into this really awesome thing. Plus, as hunting license sales are booming and Vermont trail use is up, we'll look at the benefits of getting outside. It's a certain peace that I feel walking along this this river. Nothing like walking near water or being near water that soothes the soul, so to speak. It's consoling during this time of great anxiety and, and isolation. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Ten public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. I'd kind of stopped wondering when this pandemic purgatory would end, because it felt like the answer was never. But then vaccine news brought hope. State officials across New England say they expect the first doses of a COVID-19 vaccine to arrive as soon as mid-December. After a vaccine gets federal approval, it will be sent off to each state, where they will then be distributed. Today, we're going to learn more about what that will look like for New England. Christine Finley is the Immunization Program Manager for the Vermont Department of Health. Chris, welcome to Next. Thank you. While supplies of the vaccine are limited... Who decides how many doses each state gets and how is that decision made? The CDC makes the decision on how many doses each state get, and it is based on a pro-rata basis or the otherwise the population. So once it gets to each state, is it up to the state how it's distributed or how does that work? It is up to the state how it's distributed, but there is a number of variables that have weighed into it. One of the things is that the uh, National Academies on Science, Engineering, and Medicine uh, met over the summer and came up with an equitable allocation framework for vaccine, recognizing that initially the supplies would be limited and then they would increase. In addition to that, the CDC Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices has been meeting and looking not only at that, but on data on the prevalence of COVID, uh, which populations it's impacted. Based on that, they are making recommendations. Last week, they met and they recommended for phase 1A that it should be residents and staff at long-term care facilities and um, healthcare workers with direct contact with patients. So does that mean states have to do that? No, it doesn't. States then can take that and they can make their own recommendations. But this is a challenging one because once we move beyond that first phase, the questions that they'll be facing that are under discussion now are, should the next group be essential workers who are on the front line and may be 
transportation and grocery store clerks, or should it be those that are 65 and older, which may have a higher risk of death from COVID and those with chronic disease? But I think we have to keep our eyes on the prize that the amount of vaccine will continue to increase. And we may be talking months or in some cases, even weeks of going from one group to the next. So I think it's really important that we focus on that also. Right. So like every state, Vermont, where you are, is going to be making these determinations and kind of weighing, is it this group? Is it that group? Um, What are you thinking in terms of Vermont right now on who gets priority? So Vermont has a COVID-19 vaccine implementation advisory committee. And unlike other states that maybe came out in September and agreed to everything, we've been following the ACIP and integrating that into our determinations. And the ACIP is who? The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. So we have just, we're just in the process of finalizing 1A. We want to see the data and the information and the deliberations that occur through the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices before finalizing what the next phase would be. It makes it challenging for planning, but I think we're trying to make sure that the distribution is as equitable as possible. So when we hear things like phase one is high-risk healthcare workers, first responders, people of all ages with comorbid or underlying conditions that are of significantly high risk, are those things not finalized yet for phase one? So they've broken it down. Phase 1A is finalized, but they haven't finalized phase 1B or phase 1C. Got it. So it's a constantly moving target. Yeah, I wish I was kidding. (laughs) Yeah. What is it like for you being in the thick of such intense and, I mean, truly impactful decisions every day? You know, right now, I think it's it's so the vaccine is so needed and there's so much pain that's going on in the country that it's exciting to be thinking that actually it's coming out. I think the challenge has been the speed with which it came out and which it will be made available, which is fantastic. But everybody's working to try and get things together much, much faster than they normally did. But I think there's a no matter who I've worked with on this, there's just such a commitment to trying to make it work. So despite the the speed of this vaccine, you feel confident in it and its safety. The information that we've received to date makes you confident. And But I also think that many are excited and can't wait. I've gotten some of those comments, but I'm sure there will be a, a group that is saying, I'll give it a month or two. And so we just don't know how many, what the initial uptake of the vaccine will be when it's offered. I want to stick with skepticism for a second, because I'm wondering how you plan to reach Black, Latino, Native American, and other people of color in Vermont specifically, given the history of distrust in medical systems and government after experiments like the Tuskegee experiment, for example, where researchers infected Black men with syphilis and then left it untreated so doctors could see how the disease progressed. There's also the fact that These communities are often at greater risk of contracting COVID-19 for reasons like being frontline workers. In Vermont, we have a health equity and community engagement team, and they're leading some of the planning for this. Some of the outreach that they're planning is to convene listening sessions with specific priority populations. They'll be visiting existing coalitions such as the Multilingual Task Force or the Chronic Disease and Disability Advisory Group the Racial Equity Task Force, and they'll be getting recommendations from them and providing us with feedback. They are looking at surveying partners to capture opinions and preferences about vaccines. 
and then employing feedback from what we call cultural broker focus groups with new Americans to try and help us understand it. So I assume most New England states are, are doing something similar to that, but I think there's a recognition that business as usual may not is not going to meet the needs with this pandemic. And this is all in an effort to build trust. Correct. And understand what communication avenues are important and what areas need to be addressed. And for the average person in New England, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, healthy, when might we see a vaccine? Mm, you want me to get my crystal ball out, don't you? <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> I'm guessing either late first quarter, early second quarter, but it's just a guess. I mean, there's, you know, might might we end up with five vaccines that all show effectiveness and are safe and that they can be produced? That'd be fantastic. But to expect that every vaccine that's being developed is going to make it, I think is, um, I'm hopeful, but I don't know that it's, I would bet on it. When might we be able to get back to quote unquote normal? <laughs> if I knew that answer, I'd be, <laughs> I'd be pretty good. <laughs> Christine Finley is the immunization program manager for the Vermont Department of Health. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Morgan. Have a nice day. As we just heard, many of us likely will not receive a COVID-19 vaccine until the spring or summer. So until then, we keep trying to prevent infection and contain the virus. In Massachusetts, as COVID-19 cases are surging, the state is beefing up its contact tracing program. It's a major, multi-million dollar part of the state's response to the virus. But as GBH Radio's Gabriela Emanuel reports, some experts say this initiative is not helping, and it might actually be hurting the state. Lauren Buck's days start early, compiling the names of those in Revere who have tested positive for COVID-19. The calls begin a few hours later and often last until 8.30 or 9 at night. Buck is the director of public health in Revere and part of the city's three-person team doing contact tracing. There are a lot of people who are very, very cooperative and there are people who can be very scared or sometimes don't understand. The idea is simple. Anyone who has tested positive or come into contact with someone who's tested positive is called and told how to isolate themselves so they don't infect anyone else. Revere officials consider the program a crucial part of their COVID response, and they're expanding the team. The same is true in lots of other communities. The state is also increasing its contact tracing capacity to back up local boards of health. It's 1,300 strong right now, and they're recruiting another 800 people. But as efforts across the state ramp up, there are skeptics. The proof is right in front of us. It clearly didn't work. We have exponential growth that's out of control. It did not work. Michael Minna is at Harvard School of Public Health. He says that contact tracing can work in certain contexts, but... We've never seen any real data from the U.S. that this can work. He points to a recent study in the medical journal JAMA that highlights some major limitations in terms of timeliness and how many cases they are actually catching compared to all the cases out there. I actually think the insistence on contact tracing and making that a cornerstone of our response is part of the reason we're in the problems that we have right now. Through September, Massachusetts has spent $66 million on contact tracing. Minna thinks that would be better spent on a massive testing program. Not only is the focus on contact tracing draining resources, he says, is preventing the state from thinking more creatively about what to do. 
And some states, including Maine and New Hampshire, are scaling back their contact tracing as they are swamped by COVID cases. Some predicted this. Because it's so resource intensive, it diverts public health effort from other activities. At the beginning of the pandemic, when the contact tracing collaborative with the nonprofit Partners in Health was launched, Mark Lipsitch, who was also at Harvard, warned against investing heavily in the program. Contact tracing works well when you have relatively few cases so that you have the resources to do it, and when you have even fewer cases that are unknown, so the testing capacity is high relative to the case burden. Neither of those is true right now. True then or now. He says it can be useful in limited settings like a nursing home, but not for a whole state. Yet both Minna and Lipsitch acknowledge they are in the minority. Many public health experts believe there is value in contact tracing, saying it helps identify clusters, understand how the virus moves through society, and it can stop chains of community transmission. Lauren Buck in Revere says contact tracing does something else, too. Connecting those in quarantine with resources needed to stay out of work and out of stores for two weeks. Many times people are worried about food and we have a really good infrastructure in Revere in terms of getting food to people. A lot of times we hear um, worries about uh, paying bills. Buck says her team's phone calls are a way of being there for their community when things are hardest. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. For those who do get the coronavirus, it can be hard to know for certain how they got infected. Massachusetts public health officials have identified households as the largest single source of coronavirus clusters. So WBUR's Angus Chen brings us the story of one family's battle with COVID-19. Nadia Alvarez isn't sure how the coronavirus got into her home. But once it did, one thing is certain. It was uncontainable. It started with her husband, Marco. He developed a fever and muscle aches. There'd been a false alarm once before when he thought he had COVID-19 but he tested negative. It was funny because at that time we thought that he had the virus. He had all the symptoms, but he was negative. This time, he wasn't so lucky. And soon, she started to feel weird too. Alvarez's daughters play in the background as she recounts how, just a few days after her husband began feeling sick, her sense of taste vanished and her perfume mysteriously lost its fragrance. Nothing. And I told my daughters, can you smell this? Yeah. Alvarez works in COVID outreach for the city of Revere. So when the chills and headache hit, she knew she had to get tested for the coronavirus. It was on Tuesday, the election day, and I went to vote. And, um, and then my body was so heavy and the headache, and I started shivering a lot. Uh, I don't, I, I don't want to lie to you. Uh, I freaked out. As the first to fall ill, Alvarez thinks her husband Marco was the one who brought coronavirus into the house. But where did he get it? The family had been careful about wearing masks and social distancing. She says he might have been exposed while hanging out at a friend's auto body shop, or it could have happened at work or at a grocery store. But once he was sick, it spread through the family fast. Alvarez, her husband, and two of their four children all tested positive. The household setting is the number one. There doesn't seem to be another variant as large as household. That's Tom Lane, the associate director for Boston's Infectious Disease Bureau. Of 18,000 cases in the city of Boston as of mid-November, Lane says the vast majority, some 15,000 cases, were linked to household transmission. But even though that number seems staggering, Lane's quick to point out that some of this is based on conjecture. 
Even if two people in the household both test positive, like Alvarez and her husband, Lane says you can't be certain the infections are connected. That's really hard to get at. Unless you are literally in a bubble <laughs> and you see nobody else except for that one person who tests positive, can we prove that you are the source of that infection? This creates two headaches. First, without knowing where people are getting infected, it's difficult to identify the places where transmission is most likely to happen. Boston University epidemiologist Dr. Benjamin Linus says that means public health officials have limited options to stop the spread of COVID-19. What we're left with is this very blunt measure of close and stay home that's totally naive to the actual drivers of the epidemic. Like whether the infections are mostly happening at restaurants or workplaces or somewhere else entirely. It's also becoming more difficult to trace super-spreading events. Bronwyn McInnes is an epidemiologist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Some super-spreading events are probably going undetected um, because it's harder to differentiate super-spreading from community transmission or, you know, clusters at all. And we're losing the ability to follow those events up because there's so much going on. There is one way researchers could get more clarity, genomic epidemiology. McInnes is an expert in it. By sequencing the genomes of viruses that infect different people, she can see if their infections are related. If you have the right sampling framework, you can, in theory, identify sources of infection that are common. But right now, there just isn't enough data to tell whether the coronavirus that infected Maddie Alvarez is the same one that infected her husband. Alvarez says she hasn't wondered too much about that. Just getting COVID gave her enough to worry about. It's really hard. Being sick, being isolated, you get that little depression, I would say, that you just want to cry. And, you know, it's hard. Her husband's been a week in the hospital and needed supplemental oxygen. They're both feeling better now, but Alvarez says her husband is still recovering. So now he's here at home, thank God. He got lots of lot better, but he's still, you know, weak. He's trying to catch up with his body. When Alvarez speaks to Revere residents now, she reminds them to be extra cautious, wear masks, and practice social distancing. And she tells them to do this even in their own homes, if they think someone might be getting sick. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Angus Chen. We're planning a special in January that looks at the threat of climate change in New England and how the incoming Biden administration could affect climate action here. For that show, we want to hear from you. Who do you think should lead the response to climate change? And what should they focus on? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also email us at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. Coming up, New Englanders help each other. From a woman who opened a food pantry in her home in Hartford, Connecticut, to the creation of COVID-19 safe showers for the homeless on Cape Cod. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. 
The coronavirus pandemic has been isolating for a lot of us, but it's also brought community institutions together in a new way. In the northernmost county of New Hampshire, a daily Zoom call has been essential for leaders managing the fallout of the pandemic. And as New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson reports, some say it's the blueprint for better collaboration. When the coronavirus shut down just about everything in March, including schools, Gorham Superintendent David Backler got on a call with his counterpart in Berlin and staff from local health centers. You know, at first, it really was a symbiotic relationship where we were just looking for resources. Back then, there were so many unknowns. Should we wear masks? And if so, do we have enough? You know, who's got what and how do we make sure we can get supplies from the schools to the hospitals. It quickly became clear no one could handle this crisis alone. Androscoggin Valley Hospital had some N95s, but healthcare workers were reusing them. Gorham High School had UV lights to sanitize its science lab equipment, so it lent those to the hospital. These calls among leaders continued. More and more people joined. The prison warden, the nursing home director, the fire chief, even the director of the Androscoggin Valley Chamber of Commerce, Paula Kinney. Kinney says these 4 p.m. Zoom calls kept everyone on the same page about COVID protocols. But for a while, the North Country hardly had any cases. You turn on the TV at night and it was horrible in some places. And here we were, we were doing great. Everything was fine. And now, like, reality is setting in. Coas County now has substantial transmission of COVID-19 like the rest of New Hampshire. It's gotten into local schools and the federal prison. And the stakes feel high because the things to watch out for with COVID, limited ICU capacity, high rates of chronic health conditions, a lot of elderly residents are all true in the Androscoggin Valley. So that Zoom call, which used to be weekly, is now daily. Okay, why don't we get started for today's meeting? Um, I recently joined one. First, there are updates from the health center. We did 36 uh, COVID tests today, a 19 rapid uh, for symptomatic. They talk about the contact tracing they're doing, the PPE that schools and businesses are getting to each other when orders get delayed. Jim Richardson, a local health coordinator, announces rapid antigen tests are on their way to the mental health center in Berlin. They are soon to get those. Is that right, Dr. Myers? That is correct. We expect them tomorrow. Thank you so very much. You made my week. Then we hear from the prisons. Um, And let's see, I still have one staff member that's out just due to exposure. So that leaves us um, at two staff members that have been positive and recovered. You might be wondering, why does a superintendent need to know about prison cases or the fire chief need to know about rapid tests at the mental health center? Well, here's the thing. Institutions we often think of as separate are connected when it comes to public health. COVID in prison could go home with prison guards, infect those guards' kids, end up in the school, show up in the nursing home, and so on. Chris Van Bergen of the North Country Health Consortium is one of the regulars on these calls. She says before the pandemic, many people associated health just with the doctor's office. But public health is really about um, health in community. And, and people experience their wellness and their illness where they live. Where they live and work and go to school, Bergen says. So leaders in those spheres need to collaborate, which hasn't always happened in the past. 
This 4 p.m. call doesn't have a name or an official note taker, but participants say it's become a lifeline. Paula Kinney from the Chamber of Commerce says she hasn't missed one call yet, even if it means pulling over on the side of the road with spotty service. She told me the group recently decided to meet up in person for the first time on a hill overlooking the Androscoggin River just to say hi. We all went up to White Mountains Community College out in a field with our masks on, and we all stood apart, and we just all looked at each other in a circle. They each said a few words and thanked each other. One of them said a poem at the end, and then we all just walked away and went to work. That afternoon, they saw each other again on their regular Zoom call. Participants say when the pandemic ends, they'll have a big group dinner and hopefully tackle the next public health problem together. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. More than nine months into the pandemic, millions of people across the country are still out of work. When the pandemic started, Xiomi de la Cruz was working at a fast food restaurant when her work hours were cut back. As Connecticut Public Radio's Brenda Leon reports, de la Cruz opened a food pantry in her living room to serve local families, many who are undocumented. Xiomi de la Cruz is a Peruvian refugee single mother with two children and another on the way. Like many families, she found herself in various pantry lines to make ends meet. So I said to myself one day, why not fill up my car with food and take it to my house? Because so many moms don't have access to a car for transportation, I filled up the whole van and put a free food sign on my door. De La Cruz began collecting food, diapers, and milk and started distributing them to friends and neighbors. She called it La Bodeguita de la Gente, or the People's Little Corner Store. For six months, she stored everything in her Hartford living room. Mi sala, mi entrada, mi porch. My living room, my entrance, my porch became the people's little corner store. I no longer had a table. I no longer had armchairs because more donations were coming in and people began to know about the store. Many of the families who knocked on her front door are undocumented, severely impacted by the pandemic and who were ineligible for U.S. federal COVID-19 assistance. The food pantry quickly outgrew her living room, and she borrowed a space in what she describes as the heart of Hartford's Latino and immigrant community. On a recent Thursday afternoon, nearly 10 families are lined up at La Bodeguita de la Gente. Igmar Rivero signs up families patiently waiting in the parking lot right outside the entrance of their storage area. Over a table, he hands a packed bag with rice, beans, sugar, and instant corn flour, the food base of a Latino family. Food insecurity has nearly tripled among households with children during the pandemic, and Black and Hispanic families are more likely to experience this. For many undocumented parents who have lost their jobs, pantries and food banks are a lifeline to alleviate economic stress. What began as a food basket distribution to 20 families now helps 150, many with young children. Mabel Romero arrived from Honduras with her children a year and a half ago, and she lost her job early in the pandemic. 
Her family was ineligible for benefits that could prevent hardship. Por la pandemia, ese era el sitio adecuado donde íbamos muchas personas. Because of the pandemic, this was the right place for many of us to go. There were many of us who didn't have jobs, especially immigrants, because in this country, it seems that we don't count. She says she also became part of a community of families who share resources, information, but most importantly, mutual support. De La Cruz prides herself in having built that community of families and a rapid response network that now not only distributes pantry items every week, but also addresses other urgent needs like immigration updates and domestic violence prevention resources. De La Cruz says she dreams of creating a home for refugee families facing hardship. In the meantime, she helped many have a meal this Thanksgiving. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brenda Leon. Now another story of people helping each other through the pandemic. Before COVID hit, people who were homeless on Cape Cod had access to showers at two locations in Hyannis, the St. Joseph House Shelter and the Duffy Health Center. Pandemic restrictions put a stop to that in the spring. But with a little ingenuity and help from the state, showers are back in a special trailer that meets COVID-19 protocol. CAI's Jeanette Barnes has more. This is the shower in my house. It's only steps away from the bedroom, and if I don't overindulge in the snooze button, I get to use it pretty much any morning I want. Not everyone has that. For people who are homeless and living outdoors, the simple act of taking a shower becomes a profound luxury. This spring, precautions against COVID-19 closed some of the few showers open to them, including the one in the basement of the Duffy Health Center. So we just like quickly realized that there was a huge need for all these like basic needs, hygiene, all that stuff. Melissa Payne works in recovery support at the health center. She's standing in the parking lot outside a silver metal trailer brought in as a COVID-19 compliant shower station. It has two exterior doors, and behind each is a bathroom. Anyone who needs a shower is welcome, Payne says. So people can just walk up, we set them up with what they need, we ask them if they have any health concerns. Back at the start of the pandemic, the health center staff told their state senator, Julian Sear, that if they had to close their basement shower, it would be great to have an outdoor shower station. Within a few days, the trailer arrived from the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. Now visitors can shower three days a week instead of the previous one. Payne says each person gets toiletries, a towel from the health center's linen service, and 20 cleansing, comforting minutes. We also have Narcan available for people, snacks, food. We've been able to really connect with people we couldn't touch before in terms of housing, treatment, all that stuff. A professional cleaner is standing by in full virus protection gear to clean the showers between each use. Payne says she's proud of how the shower program has grown into a hub of support. The case managers and recovery staff have gotten several of their regulars into drug treatment, a sober house, a shelter, or housing. We were like, oh my gosh, this has grown into this really awesome thing. I meet up near the shower station with Lita Burbank and Joseph DiGiloromo, who heard about the showers shortly before they got evicted from their Yarmouth apartment in July. 
Within a week of us losing that apartment, we had started coming here. We came over not knowing what to expect, really. Yeah, and we had had some issues with addiction as well. The couple hadn't been in the apartment long, and before that, they bounced around to different homes and lived outside. They say the people they met through the shower station helped guide them in their recovery and so much more. Big things like getting Burbank into detox and little things like letting them charge their phones. Leah's helping us get housing that we didn't think was possible. <laughs> and they, they ask for, for nothing in, in return. Right. You know, they, they just ask that we keep doing the next right steps to get us to where it, do we, yeah. we need to go. It, just, it helped show us that uh, there are people out there that really care. Really about care. They don't have to shower in the trailer anymore because they got beds at St. Joseph House Shelter. Through the shelter, DiGiloramo, who grew up in Dennis and Yarmouth, says he got some work as a handyman. Ever since we started coming here, our life has improved on almost Greatly. a daily basis. Although this couple is fairly young, Duffy case manager Kathleen Finn says many who use the showers are in their late 40s or early 50s and have been homeless a long time. So we have people that have been out in the woods for many, many years. They're all getting older. Finn can see the difference in the way they carry themselves as soon as they step out of the trailer. And they come out feeling so much more human. I've had people actually have tears in their eyes saying, I have not had a shower in so long and it feels so good. The Duffy staff say in a world more focused than ever on measuring success, sometimes giving someone the chance to see a doctor with dignity or to take a warm shower really is enough. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jeanette Barnes. The Salvation Army bell-ringing fundraiser has been happening for at least a century. But now, Connecticut Public Radio's Ali Warshawski reports, it's a holiday tradition that's struggling during the pandemic. Sergeant Anthony Rivera of the Stanford Salvation Army Corps says they usually have nine bell ringers throughout the city, but this year they only have three. They got one or two people who were pretty faithful every year to be a bell ringer, and they opted out because they were just worried. Not only has the pandemic had an effect on people willing to volunteer to be bell ringers, some stores will not allow them outside their doors this year. Rivera says it will be much harder to reach the $35,000 goal they have between Thanksgiving and Christmas. In addition, he says some people are wary to get close enough to put cash in the bucket. They are hoping people will try out a new way to donate. There's a NFC tag where you can just tap your phone on that tag and it'll throw you to a link to donate. Even as fundraising is threatened, Rivera says the need for assistance from the Salvation Army has doubled. Not only are they helping provide toys this holiday season, they're helping with food assistance and diapers for those hardest hit by the economic effects of the pandemic. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ali Warshavsky. After the break, northern New England states are seeing an uptick in hunting license sales this year, and hiking trail use is up in Vermont. Why more New Englanders are getting outside. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. Hunting and fishing license sales are booming this year across northern New England. 
Hunting licenses are up 18% since last year in New Hampshire, 20% in Vermont, and a bit more modest in Maine at a 9% increase. Joining us to talk about this hunting boom during the pandemic is Erin Merrill, president of Women of the Maine Outdoors, a group dedicated to getting more women and girls to participate in outdoor activities. Erin, welcome to Next. Thank you so much for having me. So first, I just got to ask you, did you get a deer this November? I did. I did. I figured that I put in about 65 hours in the woods before I was able to punch my tag, but it was well worth it. And you've been hunting for a long time, right? About 18 years now, so almost half my lifetime I've been out in the woods hunting. And why do you hunt? What, what drew you to it? Initially, it was a chance for me to spend some time with my dad in the fall. Um, but then once I got into it, it's really an amazing way to have organic food in my freezer. There's something about the reward of shooting a bear, shooting a deer, and providing for my family, providing for you know my grandparents, for friends, and um, especially with the pandemic, to have that meat and not have to rely on the grocery store is really pretty impactful. And I'm guessing you eat everything you shoot? Yes. So as I mentioned at the top, more people are buying hunting licenses this year, at least in northern New England. Does that square with what you've been seeing on the ground? Absolutely. A lot of women are really interested in finally getting outside. I think that, you know, we women have always been meaning to do it, and there's always been a strong interest. But because so many people have been home, the opportunities to really, you know, get up and work at six o'clock in the morning so that you can take off at one thirty, two o'clock in the afternoon and go sit in the woods for a couple of hours. That flexibility, I think, has allowed more women to take advantage of getting their hunting licenses, getting their trapping licenses, and finally feeling confident enough to go out and do it. Yeah, well, I'm glad you mentioned women because it's not only that we've seen hunting license sales go up, but actually a spokesperson for Maine's Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife told Vermont Public Radio that they're also seeing more women hunting this year. It sounds like you're seeing that trend too? Yes. Yeah, there are a ton of women who, on all the posts on social media, are uh, you know, posting their first deer or their first bear, their first turkey. And there are women that are you know, in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that are finally getting the chance to get outside and harvest their first animal. Why now for them? Like, why the draw? Is it just, is the pandemic a pretty good answer for that? I think the pandemic, yes. But I also think that there's been a steady increase in women buying hunting licenses over the past few years. And I think this is finally sort of the the tipping point that let them say, okay, it's now or never. And my group, we're really trying to empower more women so that um, they feel more confident in finally taking those next steps to get in the outdoors. Yeah, talk about confidence there, because I can imagine, well, I'll just speak for myself, like, it could be a little daunting to say, okay, yeah, I'd like to learn to hunt, but it's maybe a field that's not typically had women in it. And like, how do I learn? How do I, how do I figure this out in an environment that feels supportive? Right. Uh, My neighbor is, you know, an adult onset hunter. And so she started last year. She's in her mid-50s. And because we've all been working from home, I've had the opportunity to help her figure out where's her best stand placement. 
or where, what sign she should be looking for, for, for deer sign. And it worked out that I was, I was closing out a zoom call and I heard the gunshot. And so I immediately, you know, sent her a text and was like, what do you need for help? And so we helped her gut her deer, haul it out, and then send it to the butcher and the taxidermist. And so it was just, I think it's a chance for women to finally come together. So many of us are home or working from home that it's easier, I think, to just say, okay, well, I'll meet up with you and we can go out for a couple of hours to hunt. Over the past few decades, we've seen a decline nationally in the number of people buying hunting licenses. I know we've seen this increase as we've been talking about in northern New England this year, but what do you think it will take to sustain that momentum? I think the continuation of support for women who, you know, after they get the first deer, keeping that enthusiasm going, keeping that energy going, when everybody goes back to work at some point, how do they still make time to get out in the woods? Because that's one of the biggest um, issues that people have is once once everything returns to normal and you're working, plus you have kids, how do you make time to be outside? How do you prioritize that? Aaron, in terms of like people who don't hunt, like why should they care that hunting is on the decline? I mean, there's this this connection between buying hunting licenses and conservation, right? Right. So when I buy a hunting license, I am paying for inland fishers and wildlife staff to study birds, to study, you know, vernal pools, any sort of aspect of conservation. So as hunting numbers decline and those dollars decline, the state has to come up with ways to figure out how are they going to sustain those conservation projects. So even if you're not a hunter, but you just love to be outside, unless you're conscientiously making donations to groups that are going to support those conservation efforts, it's hunters that are the ones that are that are putting, you know, all this money into the the whole economy of the outdoor industry. Those dollars are crucial right now, especially as more people are getting outside to ensuring that all these habitats stay thriving for the animals. Aaron Merrill is president of Women of the Maine Outdoors. Thank you so much for joining us, Aaron. Thank you. The reports from earlier this year are in, and all across Vermont, the number of people using hiking trails is up. Whether it was the Long Trail, that's the hiking trail that spans the length of the state, Vermont State Parks, or developed trails in towns and cities, people flocked to the outdoors during the early months of the pandemic. Vermont Public Radio's Howard Weiss-Tisman met people finding solace and peace on the trails during a difficult time. Before the pandemic, Robert Peoples used to get most of his exercise at a gym in Brattleboro. I don't know, I was just more interested in the social aspect of being at the gym because it, it fulfilled two needs, one to get exercise and two to have some social connection with people. Public gyms, of course, were some of the first businesses to shut down in the early days of the pandemic. So at a time when people says he was craving exercise and social connection, his routine was upended. Peoples has lived in Brattleboro for years, but he'd never heard of the West River Trail, a developed walkway along an old railroad bed right outside of downtown. A friend suggested that he check it out. And since then, it's become an almost daily routine for Peoples, as he tries to navigate these challenging times we're all living through. It's a certain peace that I feel walking along this, this river. Nothing like walking near water or being near water that soothes the soul, so to speak. 
it's consoling during this time of great anxiety and, and isolation. And Peoples is hardly the only one who's taken to the woods during the pandemic. Pedestrian traffic on the West River Trail more than doubled this fall, according to a recent news survey. Jason Cooper has been spending time out there, and he's a member of the committee that raises funds and organizes work groups for the West River Trail. The coronavirus has taken away so much of what we love, but Cooper says nature is still here, and it's actually become the best place to safely get together with friends. So Cooper wonders if all of the people who've discovered the trail over the past few months will continue walking even when all of this is over. You know, they used to go to a bar or to a restaurant or to a movie, and now what they have is they have this, and they're getting out here and saying, wow, this is really nice, and I need to do this more often. I strongly suspect that when the pandemic has receded, that a lot of people will continue to do this who didn't do that before. The need to get outdoors during stressful times is deep-rooted in our psyche and biology, according to Brad Moskowitz, who teaches therapeutic wilderness training at Northern Vermont University. And so he's not surprised that folks who might have never laced up a pair of hiking boots before are now finding themselves walking up a dusty trail. We have been holed up in our homes. We've been asked to uh, stop socializing with our friends and even with our family members. And so it's ever more important now for us to be able to get outdoors, to breathe the fresh air, to see the natural environment, to interact with it in whatever way we see fit, because the benefits are immeasurable. The popularity of Vermont's trails and woods during the pandemic created some challenges for the state park system. Out-of-state day use was up almost 20% at the parks, and that led to overflowing parking areas and crowded trails and mountain peaks at a time when people were supposed to be socially distancing. Department of Forest, Parks, and Recreation Commissioner Michael Snyder said the season wasn't perfect. He knows people likely traveled from out-of-state from areas where they weren't supposed to, specifically to visit a Vermont lake or trail. But all of that, he says, had to be weighed against the benefits of giving people who were cooped up inside a place to roam and breathe. That was one of the stress points was, you know, even for me, it's like, I don't want Vermont State Parks to be that example of uh, of community spread uh, or, you know, a hotspot. We don't want to be the problem. We're trying to be part of the solution here as we know the wellness benefits and, frankly, the COVID protective benefits of staying healthy mentally and physically. For a lot of people, the pandemic put life on hold. Weddings were postponed, travel plans put off, and plenty of people lost their jobs. Leah Kern graduated UVM last year with a degree in nutrition science, and she was doing an internship at a hospital in New York City this spring. When the pandemic hit New York hard, the hospital where she was working laid her off. Kern had talked with a friend about doing the long trail sometime, and when they both found themselves with open schedules, they decided it was time to hit the trail. She said the hike offered some escape. There were hours and even days when she forgot there was a public health crisis out there in the world. But at the same time, Kern says the trail amplified the respect and awe she has about the natural world. Because when you're going over Mount Mansfield in a cold, driving sleet, you realize how small you are and just how big nature really is. I think the pandemic sort of is this reminder that we are not 
in control of nature. Like we like the illusion that we are, but that's something that you really, really learn and like live firsthand when you're hiking out in the woods for a month. Like there's this bigger force and it's, it's extremely humbling to, to really like look that in the eye. The average daily use count on the long trail was up 35% this year, according to the Green Mountain Club. And in September, overnight shelter use was up a whopping 80% from last year. Isaac Alexander Leach is with the Green Mountain Club, and he says the pandemic really put Vermont's trail system to the test. Early in the spring, the state was on lockdown, and Alexander Leach says the GMC had no staff out when the trail was already reaching midsummer levels. The flood of new people meant all the hikers didn't understand how to protect fragile mountaintop areas. And moving out of the way to socially distance beat down an already overused trail system. But one thing everyone learned, Alexander Leach says, is that a lot of people leaned on Vermont's mountains and trails at a time when there was little else around to offer strength and hope. I think this was definitely a, a year where the value of having these outdoor resources in Vermont and having them open really came through. And so seeing how so many people who hadn't been out in the outdoors or hadn't been as involved with the Vermont outdoors as they normally had, yeah, that was really special. No one knows how long this will last or what things will look like next year. But one thing's for sure, Vermont's mountains and streams will be here for us when the snow melts in the spring. For the New England News Collaborative... I'm Howard Weiss-Tisman. And that's a wrap on Next this week. You can catch past episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 